Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Meet the Barrister series for the Raising the Bar podcast with me, Alana Hughes. In the Meet the Barrister series, I speak to a different guest barrister and discuss their path to the bar and their practice, as well as any other interesting topic of discussion that pops up in our conversation. The aim of this series is to demonstrate that the bar is not a one-size-fits-all sort of profession, as it is sometimes wrongly assumed to be. Barristers come from a wide variety of backgrounds and specialise in many different areas of law. There is something for everyone. Before I introduce my guest, I just want to note that this episode is being recorded remotely. I am in my home and my guest in theirs due to the social distancing and lockdown measures to combat the ongoing COVID-19 crisis and there may therefore be a slight reduction in audio quality. We hope you won't mind. My guest today was called to the bar in 2016 and is at the very beginning of building their practice. Zara Hassan has recently commenced her second six at Garden Court Chambers which, a little trivia that might be helpful for the next Grey's Inn quiz night, just so happens to be the largest chambers in London, with 197 barristers and 27 QCs. Garden Court is a number one ranked chambers committed to fighting injustice, defending human rights and upholding the rule of law. It really is no surprise that my guest obtained pupillage in such a prestigious public law set, given the wealth of experience that she has on her CV prior to pupillage. Zara has previously worked as a policy and campaigns assistant at Liberty, as a legal policy and campaigns officer with Southall Black Sisters, and as a legal advisor for London Black Women's Project. Zara has given oral evidence in Parliament as an expert witness to the Joint Committee on the Draft Domestic Abuse Bill and has also briefed the Joint Committee on Human Rights. In more briefings, Zara has briefed parliamentarians on abortion rights in Northern Ireland, on reforms to the Gender Recognition Act 2004 and on ending indefinite immigration detention. And so Zara is no stranger to work involving advocating for the rights of some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Zara, hello and welcome to the Raising the Bar podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So I know this week some of the lockdown restrictions have been eased in, in London and in England, but how have you been keeping over the past two months? Yeah, well, thank you. It's uh, obviously been quite a tumultuous time um, and it has had a huge impact on my practice and obviously pupillage as well. Um, but I've been keeping very busy um, with as much work as I can get at the moment. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been OK, um, but we are obviously seeing some changes now. So it could be an entirely different story in a couple of weeks. So today, I'm hoping that we can discuss your path to the bar, uh, the practice that you intend to build for yourself, and also your experience of coming to the bar through Grey's Inn as a member. So let's begin with your path to the bar. I know that you studied a BA in history at University College London at undergraduate, and then you completed internships in journalism with Al Jazeera and The Guardian. Was a career in journalism on the horizon for you initially before you chose to come to the bar? Um, it's interesting. I did a lot of student journalism at university and, as you said, um, did work uh, for a couple of media outlets um, 
And for me, it was never really a serious consideration um, in terms of kind of committing myself to that as a career. It was more that I always really enjoyed um, the kind of flavor and nature of journalistic writing and felt that it was quite a good way to be able to uh, talk about some of the issues that I was interested in. So I continue to write as much as I can. Um, When I was uh, working at Liberty before I started Pupillage, I wrote a few articles and For me, uh, journalism is something that I feel I can very much do alongside um, a career at the bar. It's not a career in itself for me personally, uh, but it is something that I I really enjoy and I think a helpful platform to uh, raise awareness about the work that um, I and other people are doing. So that's sort of where my interest kind of stemmed from um, and what I hope to continue doing going forwards, really. Can you pinpoint what it was or you know what what it was that made you want to convert into law then and eventually train to become a barrister so I actually decided that I wanted to be a barrister when I was at school Um, and I, I can't really pinpoint how and why because I don't have any lawyers in the family I'm not sure how I discovered uh what a barrister does um and the fact that they exist um I remember being at school and having to do an exercise in one of our classes on the death penalty and just being exposed to this issue and thinking very deeply about how um, how strange it was to me that the death penalty still existed in, in a number of countries and, and talking through that and thinking through that and then doing a kind of pseudo advocacy exercise on that issue, it sort of really cemented this idea for me that that's sort of what I wanted to do as a job Um, and I think I just then found a way to sort of translate that into a profession that that existed Um, but then I thought that well if this is what I want to do for the rest of my life there's no point necessarily starting that aged 18 Um, I can study something else that I also have a real interest in uh, and then sort of come to the law a bit later Um, so that's sort of that's sort of what I did um but of course at that point I didn't really have a sense of how difficult it would be and how competitive it was so really throughout university it was it was about really preparing myself for that process and learning as much as I can could about the profession and uh, making contacts and networks where I could in order to sort of prepare myself for the law conversion and, and the bar course you know, it's it's really interesting that even though you knew what you wanted to do, you knew you wanted to study law, you knew you wanted to be a barrister, but you decided to take your time at it, do something else at undergrad first and not go straight into law at 18. Lord Sumption, who retired from the Supreme Court bench in 2018, he praised uh, the GDL route into law and his advice is that if you can't afford to study a little longer, you know, the extra year, then you should go off and you should study something else first. And actually, I think he highlighted history as the best degree that you could possibly study um, in order to become a barrister later on. And he referred to it as a way of gaining a a broad culture. Would you agree that in studying something else before coming to the law, you have got a little bit more of a broader experience of of the world, really? Absolutely. I think um, my history degree was a really formative period for me and I was particularly interested in uh, political philosophy, uh, studying sort of the classic texts 
that um, you do on those courses and uh, getting a real framing for how the legal system has been shaped by those ideals um, that were you know, written about in the Enlightenment and, and subsequent periods. Uh, so for me, it was both the sort of uh, the thinking about those issues, but then also um, the practical skills that I got in terms of drafting and uh, examining evidence and being able to analyze that evidence and translate it into uh, arguments, um, written arguments. For me, um, that all really, I think, has uh, built a very strong foundation for what I now do. Um, but also being able to think more broadly about political systems and uh, institutions in a way that is now directly relevant to the work that I'm interested in. So really, I think that it was the best possible degree I could have done. And I, and I really enjoyed it. I made some amazing friends who now do a whole host of things. And it's nice also to have that experience where I can um, situate myself in uh, in sort of social groups where not everyone's a lawyer um so that is also quite important to me so uh so yeah I I really enjoyed my degree and I think anyone who's sort of thinking of doing history I'd really recommend it as uh, a sort of stepping stone definitely I know Lord Sumption referred to being able to afford the extra year of study. He meant in terms of the time, you know, being able to take that extra year of time. He didn't mention the matter of being able to afford in the literal sense, the financial cost of the extra GDL on top of an undergraduate degree. And, you know, the GDL is costly from what I could find online, just preparing for today's conversation. The cost at the minute ranges from sort of the £8,000 mark right up to £12,000. And then obviously to be a barrister, you've then got the cost of the BPTC again after that. But I suppose this is where the scholarships, which the INS award come in as vital tools for access. And I know that you have been awarded um, many scholarships by Greys. So can you can you tell me just about how vital these awards have been for you in facilitating your career at the bar and particularly in facilitating the route in which you wanted to go to get to where you are now? Definitely. I, I think the scholarships from Greys have been entirely instrumental for me, really. Um, I come from a background, as I said, I don't have any lawyers in the family. Uh, first generation to go to university. My dad um, owned a news agent while I was growing up. My mum trained later on in life as a, a nursery assistant. And uh, I, I didn't really have any reference point or any contacts. And I think for me, the scholarships were a way, obviously, to be able to financially afford the training that I had to undertake, um, but also gave me, uh, obviously, the the kind of important um, recognition that you do need in making pupillage applications, uh, but also embedded me a little bit more into life at the inn and exposed me to contacts and networks that I obviously needed in order to make those applications for pupillage successfully. Uh, So really it was um, the GDL scholarship was, uh, both the GDL scholarship and the BPTC scholarship, without them, I wouldn't have been able to undertake either of those courses. And um, I also worked part-time throughout both the full-time GDL and the full-time bar course, just to be able to uh, survive. Um, And I think, really it is it is so vital for people who 
have the have the skill, have the potential, um, have the drive to succeed in this career, but who wouldn't be able to do it without um, the the economic support. Um, and that support from Grace has continued uh, from the GDL to now. Um, I'm really grateful that Grace awarded me two pupillage scholarships this year as well. Um, obviously, there are disparities within the bar in terms of pay and doing predominantly legal aid work is difficult when you come from a disadvantaged socioeconomic background. Um, and I think what the scholarships represent is that they are they are a recognition that the bar can be a deeply unequal place for many people. Um, and of course, there are economic challenges are one thing, but then there's race, there's class, there's, there's gender, which are also barriers. And I think that financial support from Grays, but also the professional support that you get by being an active member of the inn uh, helped me navigate a lot of those uh, difficulties. Yeah, I mean, you talked there about not having a reference point growing up, a reference point in, in the legal world, and nor did I. And I suppose that really, you know, underpins the reason why I wanted to start this podcast was to be able to provide people who are listening, be it students who are thinking about a career at the bar or uh people who are in completely different careers at the moment and they're wanting to move into the bar perhaps to be able to provide them with a reference point that they might not have and listen to the stories of the barristers who come on to speak to me and think actually I can see similarities between myself and this person and the fact that they were able to do it is an inspiration to me and then that can prove to someone that they are more than capable themselves but I think, you know, it would be negligent of us to to sort of brush over the fact that it's not a case of just making a decision to have a career at the bar. There are many, many barriers, as you've mentioned, uh, to success and the need for an awareness of your finances, uh, having everything in order that you need to be in order in order to get over the line on things is really important. And so forward planning is vital. And the in in giving awards the way that they do give you the ability to plan because once your finances are in order, then you're able to look forward and think, okay, well, this can be the year that I can go for pupillage or this can be the year that I can definitely complete the BPTC. And it's those sort of assurances that don't automatically land on the doorstep of people who are from uh any sort of underprivileged background and that's where these awards are, are just absolutely critical. Definitely um, and I would just add to that that uh, I think what is quite special about Greys is they think more broadly about scholarships beyond just funding the courses so I was really lucky to be a residential scholar and being able to have accommodation provided for the bar course year was really uh, was really important for me because it would have been really difficult to study full time and make enough money part time to afford rent that year. Um, and so what I was able to do with both the residential scholarship and the fee scholarship is work part time to fund my living expenses, my bills, um, but to not have that worry that I was um, creating huge amounts of debt for myself or that I was working myself to the ground just in pursuit of something that is is competitive and there's no guarantee that at the end of it you're going to get pupillage. Um, so the stakes are very high for people. Um, and the other thing I would just say is that uh, I think it's absolutely right that not having that reference point is difficult and a lot of it comes down to luck. And um, for me, mentorship was really key. So when I was um, 
about 16, 17, so still at school, um, I was part of the Social Mobility Foundation because they provided me with a sort of uh, weekly uh, amount of money to pay for books um, and other things uh, to help me educationally. And through that, I applied for a, a professional mentoring scheme that they had, and they uh, put me in touch with a barrister who was a member of Bray's Inn. And she really sort of took me under her wing and uh, explained to me how the bar works, told me about the scholarships that were available and took me to dinner at Gray's Inn when I was still at school. Um, and that really gave me the exposure to uh, obviously the information and the knowledge that I needed to effectively uh, plan and to sort of know what I needed to do in order to get where I wanted to be. Um, and we're, we're still in touch now. And, it, and it's really nice because she's been supportive throughout my journey. And um, those sorts of relationships that you can build through uh, through programs like the Social Mobility Foundation or others from quite a young age are actually crucial um, if you are from a disadvantaged background, because if you only really make those networks later in life, of course, it's still possible. And, and that's not to say that uh, you need to be doing all of this age 16. That's not, not at all true. Um, but it does help you get there uh, quicker, I, I guess, if you're able to uh, make those networks and put yourself on more of an equal footing, because there will be people at the bar whose parents are barristers um, and whose family friends are barristers. And so they have that influence and that exposure uh, very, very early on in life. And for me, I was very dependent on those networks to be able to guide me um, and help me understand what I needed to do. And was it that mentoring connection then that, that led you to become a member of Grey's to choose Grey's over, over the other inns? Yes, absolutely. She was really supportive in uh, explaining to me kind of the the reasons why Grey's is the best in uh, in terms of uh, the financial support and also the support from the education department um, and particularly the fact that it is the smallest in so that has its advantages in terms of being able to really build close relationships with uh, both the barrister members and the uh, members of the education department who are always so supportive and generous with their time and so for me, that seemed to make the most sense uh, to join an inn that uh, gave me that kind of community and that network. And also the fact that this, the scholarships for the GDL and the bar course, um, although kind of fewer in number, were higher in value. And for me, there was no point applying for a scholarship and getting £2,000 uh, because that wouldn't have actually made any material difference and um, what I needed was a scholarship that would cover the full fees so it with all that kind of knowledge and, and um, uh, insight I was able to sort of make an informed decision and uh, definitely made the right one. I completely agree. And it's interesting, actually, that you mentioned the size, because I think that's a factor that weighs in on a lot of people's decision to come to Grace is that we are the smallest in. And that means that when you have mixed messes and when you have, you know, grand day, for, for example, you recognise people and barristers and new seniors in the inn also recognize you which is really really lovely and something that I don't know you would easily replicate at other inns that are much bigger in number 
Um, and I suppose for me, the reason why I wanted to come to Grey's was um, because I attended the University Advocacy Day when I was in final year of my undergraduate degree. And obviously I made the decision to move to the London Bar from Northern Ireland. And so I was completely, you know, unaware of really how the majority of things worked. And I was just sort of floating along, hoping that the answers would come. Uh, but it's the reason why I mentioned earlier the the need to forward plan and the need to, to sort of have your ideas in order before you embark on this sort of, I don't know, uphill battle to become a barrister in, in many ways um, is because I really didn't at that stage. But Greys were like so helpful to me in helping me to build that plan. And I suppose then I absolutely have to agree with you that we've made the right decision 100 percent. Definitely. And it, it goes from, as you say, the sort of uh, the macro level of the scholarships and um, the events to the micro level of people in the education department uh, being able to call them um, the day before a pupillage interview and say, uh, I have this interview tomorrow. Can you put me in touch with someone who will speak to me about it or who will do a mock interview with me um, and being able to facilitate that and have people who will support you and who will be on the other end of the phone and to be able to be put in touch with sort of relevant contacts and people who specialize in the areas that you're interested in uh, who can give you really uh, really insightful uh, advice um, that has been I think one of the biggest things that the inn's been able to provide for me in terms of um, obviously pursuing a career at the bar, but specifically in human rights law. Um, so I would say that's a really, uh, it's a really huge uh, part of what Grey's Inn does. Um, it's really about listening to what your interests are, what you want to do, what, where you see your career going, and then helping you to facilitate that. Before we move on to talk about your practice, I just want to find out more about your experience of finding pupillage. What was that process like for you? It was an extremely tough process. Um, I applied for pupillage three times before getting pupillage at Garden Court, which is where I'm now, um, which is where I am currently. Um, I did the bar course and then I worked for a few years. So I first did an internship in South Africa at the Women's Legal Centre there. And um, I did that for three months. And when I came back to the UK, I then worked at a couple of specialist domestic violence organisations. Um, so the London Black Women's Project and Southall Black Sisters. And then after that, I worked at Liberty. Um, and whilst I was in those jobs, I was applying for pupillage at the same time. And it was only when I started my job at Liberty that I was successful in my pupillage application. And it was difficult because I had built a lot of experience kind of prior to uh, finishing the bar course. I'd done a lot of voluntary work. Um, I'd worked as a legal assistant uh, part time and uh, I was director of Vocalize. I'd done a huge amount of things. Um, and I think really for me, it was learning how to actually pitch myself and how to write a, an effective application that got me through the door to interviews and then learning how to interview effectively. 
And again, those are all skills that you don't necessarily know how to do if you come from a background where you're not having these conversations at the dinner table every evening and you're not um, exposed to people who can give you that sort of insight as to what specific chambers are looking for. And so I think for me, applying the first two times was a learning process in itself. And it was difficult because you get a you get a huge number of rejections, um, incomparable to to sort of other jobs that you might pursue. You you're applying for fifteen plus uh, places every year, and then you're um, getting rejected from all of them two years in a row. And it's and 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 obviously sort of I incrementally started getting more interviews. I started. Uh, getting more final round interviews and by the third time I applied I'd you know got interviews at a lot of places I'd applied to had a lot of final rounds but it's very difficult to secure that that final space and for me I think that the reason I was successful the third time is because and I know it's very cliche but I really was myself um, I didn't try to conform or be someone that I thought that Chambers wanted I just presented who I was to each of the chambers I applied to and hoped that I would be a good fit for one of them. Uh, and I think that that worked out with Garden Court because it, it was, you know, my, my my first choice. It was the chambers that really aligned with my values. And I think letting go of that pretense or that need to um, present a version of myself, but actually just presenting myself uh, was crucial. And I think that is so uh, inherent in being a woman of color and uh, not necessarily always feeling like the bar is a place where you fit in. Um, and I think that actually letting go of that a little bit and thinking there will be somewhere that recognizes kind of my individual skills and abilities and what I can provide and uh, what I can offer as, as a member of that chambers um, was really important. And so, really at the heart of it it was about building my confidence and I think by the time I did get pupillage through that process I was also ready for it um, and my job at Liberty really did help in building that confidence for me um, so and, and I think that's why when I see my friends at the bar who are also people of colour it does often take them a few times to to secure pupillage and I think uh, and, and and I think that works across other uh, lines as well, not just race, but also gender and class. And I think that is one of the difficulties that we face coming from uh, sort of non-traditional backgrounds. Um, it's really about sort of finding who you want, finding, finding a com com comfortability in yourself um, and presenting yourself in that way and knowing that there will be a Chambers that is the right fit for you. I've heard a lot of barristers say something along the, the similar similar vein to what you've said there about finding a chambers that fits for you and sort of the importance of acknowledging that as much as a, it's important that a chambers wants you, it's also vitally important that you want them because that's ultimately where you're going to be. That's where you're going to be trained. You know, the early days of your practice are in some ways the most important in terms of the direction that it's going to take for the rest of your career. And so I think in terms of well, I mean, this day last week, 
pupillage candidates up and down the land will have been waiting by their phones and laptops to receive word on whether or not they've been successful in this round. And unfortunately, the absolute majority of them won't have been successful. So I think for those who are sort of in the process of picking themselves back up again to get uh, into the next round of pupillage whenever it starts in the autumn to try again next year, it's important to, to really, really accept that you must feel that where you are applying to is somewhere that you want to be and not just feel like you have to arrive at the interview and be what you think they want. You've got to be yourself. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that is really important to remember is I know that when 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 you're applying for pupillage, you sort of go on the profiles um, on people's on, on chambers websites um, and look at the most recent pupils or the juniors and you look at these amazing profiles and all of these incredible things they've done working internationally, working at some of the kind of top domestic human rights organizations. And you see that and you think, okay, how 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 am I ever going to stand a chance? How am I ever going to compare to that? And I think it's really important to remember that all of those people, including myself now, um, have experienced failure and have experienced rejection. And that's not a weakness. Uh, that's just a part of what this career is about. Um, people are winning cases and losing cases all the time. And really being a barrister involves a huge amount of resilience. And I think it is important that if you know that this is what you want to do and you know that you've got the, the skills and the experience to be able to do it well, um, it's important not to give up, but also to recognise that there may be additional barriers that people are facing because of their backgrounds um, and finding ways to, to navigate that through support. Um, there are so many amazing networks now uh, to sort of support people um, and ensure that you can find uh, people in uh, who are practising who maybe reflect your background and who can give you really specific advice as to what you need to do to to get there. I think another important thing to note as well is just to reach out. You know, if you if you see a barrister on a particular chamber's profile and you read their profile and you think, I've got so much in common with this person and, you know, our backgrounds are similar and maybe they can have some, maybe they have some advice for me that will be specific advice that I really need at this moment, then I mean, my advice would be just reach out because the absolute majority of barristers, in fact, all barristers that I've ever met are always just wanting to help so much, you know, to bring up the next generation. And so reaching out and just asking for a little bit of help, you nine times out of 10, you're going to get it. Definitely, definitely. And I think keeping an eye out for networks that uh, run events and that offer support um, if if you have Twitter, it's a really, really helpful platform for finding those networks and finding what events are going on. Um, and I think, I think it's definitely, I agree, it's really important to reach out, but I think it's also really important that uh, junior and senior members of the profession also take on that responsibility to, to kind of make sure that they're open to receiving requests for advice and support um, and I think now that I am doing pupillage and I do feel that I have a platform to be able to do that I try and utilize that whenever I can and people will message me on Twitter or LinkedIn all the time and I'll, I'll always sort of be there to, to help and advise because I think we do have a responsibility to make sure that the bar is truly representative, uh, representative and um, it needs to work both ways as well. 
I know that you intend to build a practice specialising in public human rights, immigration and asylum law with a particular interest in representing survivors of gender-based violence, trafficking and exploitation. And this obviously flows so naturally from the work that you've been involved in so far in your career prior to pupillage. But you know, I can't help but notice that the focus of your work is entirely on representing vulnerable, oppressed and marginalised people in our society. Where does the motivation to do this come from? What's the driving force behind your commitment to work of this nature? Um, I think it. I think it's two things. I think the first is my own lived experience and the second is my professional experience. Um, I think in terms of my lived experience, for me, as I've said, as a woman of colour from uh, a, a disadvantaged background, um, inequality and oppression has been part of mine and, and my community's everyday experience. And I think growing up and seeing people in communities and, and relatives in the immigration system and in the criminal justice system, uh, I really sort of lived that in, injustice. Um, and I think for me, I do see it as, me being an extreme being extremely lucky and sort of but for a few sort of circumstantial differences in my life if my parents hadn't moved to this country in the 60s um I my my lived experience could be very different because of because of my race and because of my heritage and I think for me that has always been a sort of inherent part of who I am and I find it very hard to to sort of see injustice and not be able to do something about it. Um, and I think that then really entrenched itself when I started working, um, particularly when I was working in the specialist domestic violence sector and when I was doing my internship in South Africa, uh, where I was working at a women's legal centre with um, women of colour. Um, and I think that it was really the stark contrast i remember when i was working in one of the domestic violence organizations uh, one of my clients um had she was a survivor of domestic violence she had a young child she was at risk of homelessness she had insecure immigration status and we were the same age at that point and we both came, had the same heritage and i remember sort of being very conscious of that and thinking there's no particular reason why i'm on the other side of those experiences and so I really found that I resonated with working with uh, people who who had those experiences and who, um, you know, from from all backgrounds, but particularly migrant women and women of colour. Um, I think there's a real uh, I do feel like a responsibility there to support people from from my communities um, and also to to think about these issues and to think about how how I can address them both in terms of the work I do, but also in terms of my position in society and 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 sort of being a barrister and making sure the profession is more representative for me both those things that we've already talked about and also the work that I do are very interconnected um and I think in terms of my professional experience as well being director of Vocalize was sort of my first insight into the sort of real injustices that people face going into prisons and seeing the kind of inherent failures of the prison system um, and then sort of going on to my subsequent jobs it really fueled my desire to do that work um, and then I think I sort of got a sense as well of 
well, I, I really enjoy helping people on an individual level. I enjoy being able to see their cases through, but I also want to have a more strategic kind of purpose in in being a lawyer. Um, and that sort of led me to do the work that I did at Liberty, where I was focusing on parliamentary advocacy and campaigning. And I think now I feel as a barrister, I can sort of combine both that individual change with the strategic change and think more broadly about the way that litigation can shape policy and law. Um, so for me, it's always been very much at the heart of why I want to do this job. It's really about using the law as a tool um, to kind of create systemic change. And I do really feel that that can't be done in isolation. And I do always try and combine my practice at the bar with political advocacy and grassroots work because it's what my background is um, and also I think the most effective way to create change. When I was having a good hunt around Garden Court's website, you know, as I always do, just preparing for, for these recordings, I find that Garden Court has a motto and I thought, oh my God, that's interesting. I've never come across the chambers with a motto before and it's uh, do right, fear no one. And it says on Chambers' website that this embodies the long-standing ethos of Chambers, which is a dedication to fighting clients' corners, no matter how formidable the opponent. And I just want to focus on, on the last part of that sentence, you know, the, the formidable opponent. And sort of in many ways, the sort of work that you're specialising in here involves clients who will more often than not be the underdog and be up against much bigger forces, be it the government or, I don't know, corporations or, or, or whoever it is. But, you know, your clients will be the ones who are fighting the corner that is probably the least resourced and you're just the underdog in, in many, many ways. So how, you know, how do you pick yourself up case after case and ready yourself for yet another uphill battle? Absolutely. I think uh, it, it's difficult. And I think we live in a time where those imbalances of power are becoming greater. Um, and particularly in the immigration context, obviously, it is an extremely hostile environment to navigate. Um, however, I think that that is really what drives me to seeing those huge disparities in how an individual is treated and, and the power that the state has and being able to play some part in holding the state to account is is really sort of fundamental to the to my motivation to do this job um, and feeling as though you have a platform um, and the privilege really to be able to voice those concerns and to uh, ensure that individuals get the representation um, and the outcomes that they need. Um, but I think in terms of actually sort of emotionally dealing with that almost. I think that's why pairing my practice at the bar with uh, grassroots work and organizing is so important because there's so much solidarity in that. So I think that it can be quite difficult sometimes to see uh, individual people um, and to see individual clients, at, you know, try to try to ensure that their rights are recognized. And of course that doesn't always happen. Um, but then being able to say, okay, well, I can also fight for that systemic change. So I think the best example really is um, doing work around immigration detention. So 
I fundamentally believe that immigration detention centers shouldn't exist, um, but I still work within a system where they do. And so I can help people with their individual uh, bail applications, with unlawful detention judicial reviews, with their civil claims for false imprisonment, um, and try and get them uh, justice in that way. But that doesn't solve the fundamental problem that people are still in detention and that they are still having their liberty deprived for reasons that I don't think are fair or, or, or reasonable. So I can then also kind of pair that with campaigning work to close detention centres and use the insight that I get from my legal work to bolster those arguments and vice versa as well. So really it's about feeling as though, well, I have a platform and I can use that platform and I can support my clients and um, ensure that they as individuals uh, can secure justice uh, in the face of really hostile opposition. But where those powers are limited in terms of what you can do as a lawyer, uh, you can bolster that through through uh, campaigning work and through um, speaking about these issues and raising awareness of them so that uh, the sort of injustices are more widely seen as well. And I suppose a natural challenge that comes from committing sort of your career to work that you are, you know, in a way personally invested in, you know, if you have strong opinions or beliefs about X, Y, Z, you know, obviously you're, you've got an investment in that type of work. And so the emotional impact is naturally then greater. And I'm just thinking back to a time when I remember I was speaking to someone who I will remain nameless and I told them that I was going to specialise in family law and they sort of um, they scrunched their face up in kind of a horror and asked me if I wouldn't rather choose an area of law that might allow me to sleep at night and I thought it was just such an odd question because you know ultimately coming to the bar you know you've got you've got lots of choice you know there's many many areas of law that you can specialise in and I suppose you could go for an area of law that you're not necessarily particularly emotionally invested in or you've not particularly got strong beliefs or opinions about anything within it and you can just sort of do your job and and switch off but the the nature of the areas of specialisms that you're in and you know that I will hopefully be in in the future mean that there is that added emotional impact and how how do you process sort of the trauma that that you see in others you know working with people who have had horrendous experiences how how do you separate that from from your own life and then find ways to to switch off and you know when you've finished your work for the day yeah I think I think that is um one of the most difficult issues uh kind of on an on an individual level uh, working in this area um I think that in some ways that sort of deep resonance that I have with the work and the fact that I do want to work tirelessly for my clients and I care so much about them and I invest a lot in in it um, is what drives me and it's what keeps uh, you going and working assiduously and doing those late nights and um, really investing in that person as a human being and wanting their life to be better is really important. So I, I don't try to detach myself from it as such because I think that's why I care about it and it's also why I enjoy what I do but it is about carving out time for yourself to not think about those things and I think that's something that I am trying to work on and, and implement in my day-to-day life 
Um, I think one of the most helpful things is just the solidarity that I have from my colleagues um, and people who, who work in the sector. There's a lot of support in chambers. Um, they have regular well-being meetings and I've had very, very supportive supervisors. So there are people with experience who've been doing this work for years who can say, well, this is how you this is how you process it. Um, but the stakes are very high. And I think that pressure is both what, what drives you and sometimes sort of drains you as well. Um, and I think there does need there, there needs to be some more work around secondary trauma for people who work in these areas because it is real and it's difficult and I'm at the very early stages of my career so I can say with you know total optimism that this is fine and it drives me and I'm and I'm okay but whether I'll be saying that in 10 20 years time I'm not sure so we do have to keep an eye on these things and personally I just I, as I said, I really try and carve out time where I'm not thinking about it at all. So when I'm thinking about it, I don't detach myself from it. I invest in it. But if I can have one weekend day a week where I don't look at my work emails and I enjoy the other things that I love in life, like music and art and seeing friends and family, um, then I can really sort of recuperate and recharge and then have the energy to sort of do the whole thing all over again the the following few days um but i think it obviously with the with the level and the nature and the complexity of the work that um we do in this area sometimes it's not possible to always carve that time out for yourself and i think it's really important to sort of make every effort to to do that even if it's an evening or it's uh an afternoon that is really i i what i find helpful when i have a period of time where I properly switch off and I'm not engaged with work at all that really kind of totally replenishes me um and I just try and I, I'm just trying to get into good habits really because it can be overwhelming otherwise um and I think if it is overwhelming then it's just so important to seek support and people are always willing to provide it um I'm sort of always speaking to to colleagues who, who I work with and in chambers who you know maybe had a difficult day or uh, want to talk through an issue and and I think that is really um where that strength comes from but definitely more needs to be done from an institutional perspective and I know that the bar is doing a lot around well-being at the moment um but I think in particular for people working in areas where their where their clients have uh, have experienced trauma uh, secondary trauma is a very real thing and it needs to be it needs to be addressed. Absolutely. And I think another sort of important um, uh, maybe sort of acknowledgement is that barristers in your specialism and in other specialisms that involve sort of that emotional challenge that we, we talked about need an element of sort of emotional resilience and endurance to take all those setbacks because as you touched on earlier you know when a certain particular approach to an issue doesn't work for you and your client then you have to maybe look at going another way around it or try and sort of for systematic change rather than change that is going to directly impact that individual right there right now and I suppose the ability to know that it's no reflection on you or or your ability as a barrister whenever you're pushed back by much greater forces that are more powerful than you time and time again and it's the need to 
as you say, pick yourself up every day and just keep going with the knowledge and belief that what you're doing is for the greater good in a sense. And so that brings us back really to to what you were talking about in, in terms of your drive to do this job in the first place. And it is your, you know, belief that you believe, you know, certain things are wrong and certain things should be a different way. But ultimately, I think an appreciation of the fact that sometimes things just take a terribly long time to change is important. And to know that we're going to be maybe a small part of a change overall is enough to then keep us going every day. Uh, but we can't expect to work miracles between Monday and Friday. You know, these things that we're dealing with take take a long, long time. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I think that that is that is the hardest part when you feel like you've got to um, an end point and you may have made uh, a difference in an individual's life or you may not have because you know you've, you've lost a case and how you then sit with that and how you deal with that and how you move forwards but I think really um, as you say the kind of the power structures are, are difficult and that is sort of what drives you to sort of keep to keep going um, and that sort of change is always going to be incremental. It's very difficult to dismantle those those power structures um, overnight, and you do have to keep keep going and keep making and and making sure that every case that you do is significant and it's important, and you put your time and your energy into it um, and do the best possible job that you can. But also realizing the limitations in in what you can achieve through that. Um, but I do think that there is, as I said, you know, a huge amount of support and solidarity in that in the uh, in the human rights sector, the human rights bar, um, and people recognise that. Um, so it's really, I think, what what is difficult is that a lot of people who who come to the bar have particularly particular personality traits where they do strive for perfectionism, and it and it's very difficult to. Um, to manage that sometimes um, but I do think that it's kind of the first the first step is recognizing those things in yourself and the second step is to learn how to to, to deal with it and, and to know that you, you know you're not alone in feeling that way you're not alone in sort of you know working all night three nights in a row for a particularly difficult case and then not getting the outcome that you want and feeling as though everything's your fault people are experiencing that all the time um and it's important to just you know as long as that effort is going in then you know recognizing the limitations in what you can achieve sometimes um but not letting that stop you from from trying everything that you possibly can to get there finally Zara, before i let you go i i just want to ask you one final question and that is about what your hopes and your aspirations for the future are I guess I hope to continue doing the sort of work I'm doing at the moment. So doing claimant appellant work in public and immigration law. Um, I'd like to do some more civil liberties work. So inquests and actions against the police. I think really my sort of the things that I care about and the things that I really want to pursue are migrants' rights, state accountability, racial injustice, trans and queer liberation and gender inequality. And I think those things really are what I want to build a practice around. Um, and I have a lot of specialisms and expertise in those areas already, but it's really about just developing that and seeing um, what kind of work I can do that will best 
further those those uh, values. Um, and I think ultimately, I really hope uh, in in a few years' time to be able to take on more strategic litigation and to be able to represent NGOs and challenges that challenge uh, laws and policies um, and represent those charities and NGOs and interventions um, to find more systemic ways to sort of redress power imbalances and discrimination and institutional racism. Because I think um, I love doing the work that I'm doing at the moment, which is very much for individuals who who need that legal support and who need um, that effective representation to uh, make sure that their their rights are heard and their voices are heard. Um, but I would like to translate that into more strategic work going forwards. Um, and I think also to just continue doing the work I'm doing to support people who are interested in a career at the bar um, and making sure that in 10 years time I can say yes the profession is more representative um, and the challenges that I faced are not as severe as they were um, so I think for me that is sort of where I see my career going and where I see my work going um, and hopefully uh, I'll be able to sort of um, affect that soon and will not be prevented from doing so by coronavirus for too much longer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, it's been really wonderful to speak to you and I can only hope that some of our listeners will have found a reference point in you um, and maybe they'll reach out and get in touch with you. I don't know. Um, I think based on what you've said, they would be welcome to. Uh, and hopefully this will be the springboard then for them to sort of pursue a similar path and just go after a career that maybe they didn't think was possible but you know you've proven that that it is no matter sort of where you come from or what you look like or what background you've had or your family connections or any of those things that people might assume they need it's it's just it's not true and yes it has to be appreciated that because of the way that things are wrongly so it might take a little bit longer or it might be a little bit harder but it doesn't mean that it's a complete barrier to access and there are ways and means to climb over those hurdles definitely no totally agree thank you so much for having me thank you so much thanks for listening to the raising the bar podcast please subscribe rate and review and for more information check us out on twitter at raising the bar gi